Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In a previous podcast, historian Dale Cox set the stage for the American attack on the fort at Prospect Bluff. In this episode, Dale recalls the actual determined American campaign and the fort's stubborn resistance between July 10 and July 27, 1816. This was not a ragtag defense by desperate, self-liberated former slaves. They were well-trained British colonial marines who happened to be black. Some, indeed, were former slaves. Even among them, they were mostly former slaves from Spanish Florida, where the Americans had no claims. All considered themselves free men and women. The fort's defense itself was an all-hands operation, with the wives and children filling bags with gunpowder that the Marines used to fire artillery rounds that kept the Americans at bay on the Apalachicola River in Spanish Florida. The Marines successfully warded off continued American naval barrages until the Americans' very last shot, when everything changed in a flash. Amidst the rubble, the Americans landed unopposed at the fort at Prospect Bluff. Authorities interviewed and executed some survivors, and regardless of previous manumission, the Americans condemned free, self-liberated Maroons back into slavery, whether that was in the United States or in Spanish Florida. A few months later, in the late fall of 1816, the British finally returned, only to find the fort destroyed and its occupants dead or re-enslaved. Former Captain Woodbine picked up stragglers who had fled into the woods after the explosion. He resettled them at Nero's town on the Sewanee River, still in Spanish Florida. Dale Cox examines the fighting, the explosion, and the grim aftermath for the fort's defenders. Dale Cox Welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you very much. I am very happy to be here. Dale, was it a foregone conclusion the Americans would have to take this fort? I feel like there would have been something, some kind of provocation. They were determined to attack this fort. And I think that Clinch would have found some reason or some justification. As it happened, by the time that he got his troops on the move down the river, and he coincided with a group of 250 or so Kawata and other Native Americans from the upper part of the Lower Creeks that Hawkins had arranged to go down and attack the fort, or William McIntosh. They were on their way down, so that would have been provocation enough, I think. They would have gotten into a shootout with the Maroons at Prospect Bluff. There would have been some reason. Something would have happened. As it all worked out, while they were waiting for Clinch to come downriver, the gunboats needed fresh water, so they sent a small boat into the mouth of the river looking for a spring to get fresh water. They were fired on by a, a group of Maroons and Choctaws, and several of the sailors in this long boat were killed. One was taken prisoner and was taken back to the fort where he was tortured and tarred and burned to death, and that created the situation that was needed for the United States to attack the fort. Flinch came down. When he got down there, he and 
his 112 men and the 250 Creek warriors surrounded the fort. They rounded up anyone who didn't have time to get into the fort and took them prisoner, turned them over to McIntosh and his Creek to sell back into slavery. They surrounded the fort. They got a little too close and found out that fort had artillery and lots of it, as they like to say in other times. Garcon opened fire on them. A day or two later, Clinch sent several of the Creek chiefs up to the fort under a white flag to demand its surrender. Garcon responded with a cannon shot and raised the British flag and the red flag over the fort, signifying that he was determined to fight to the death. And for seven days, there was a siege of the fort, and any time soldier or one of McIntosh showed our Creek warriors showed his head. They, the maroon fighters and the women in the fort responded with barrages of artillery fire. Really, they kept the American soldiers back to a ring within about a mile of the fort. They had a clear field of fire around the fort, and they were able to keep them back. Clinch never, after the first day there, he said he never got within sight of That's how effective the artillery fire was on the fort. It just didn't go well at all. On the first day when they arrived, McIntosh and his warriors moved up close to the fort. The Maroons came out and did a bayonet charge at them and drove them back in a pretty fierce hand encounter and forced them back. And then when Lynch's troops arrived in their flatboats, they opened fire on them with artillery from the fort and drove them back. Clinch said that on the first day, he was able to view the works, but after the artillery barrage, they decided to move back to a more advantageous location out of artillery range. The surgeon of the U.S. force wrote that they opened fire on them with concrete rockets, which are these kind of primitive surface-to-surface missiles with very, very weak guidance systems, which basically mean just kind of aimed them in the direction you wanted them to go and set things off, and they had a range of about one mile. And in fact, they have found pieces of these concrete rockets there at the site. There's, they were filled with anything from gunpowder to pine that they could uh, serve as the area rounds or explosive rounds and all kinds of like that. They had these six-pounders, howitzer, 24-pounders. They had pretty effective artillery that could, could ring the fort from the land side, and Clinch had no artillery. Garcon and his Maroons were able to keep up an effective fire to keep the American force back on the land side. So there was not much that the Americans did to even approach the fort, let alone attack it. And then it took seven days to get the gunboats up the river to the fort. And during that time, Clinch tried to construct a land battery two miles below the fort where he could emplace the 18-pounders when they were able to get the supply ships up. During those seven days, he finally decided that the fort was just too strong that they were not going to be able to attack it with the 350-so man force that he had, and that the 18-pounders were, you know, even though an 18-pounder is a pretty strong cannon, that they were not going to be able to get close enough with them to do any real damage to the citadel of the fort with its 18-foot-thick wall from two miles away to do any damage at all to the fort. When they got the gunboats up seven days later, they really decided not to even finish the battery that they had started building to try to bombard the fort. And so they never even brought the 18-pounders ashore to mount in their battery. They just decided it wasn't worth the time. And so um, after seven days of being bombarded themselves, the Americans decided 
it's not worth trying to continue this land attack. We're not going to get anywhere with it. And so they're befuddled. They don't know what to do. Dale, it seems clear the American military leadership underestimated resistance from this fort at Prospect Bluff. You think this was because Maroons were defending the fort? I think it came into play a lot. I think Clinch had written that he planned to go down there and with 112 men storm the walls of this fort and take them prisoner. That's what he thought was going to happen. General Gaines warned him, be careful, don't do anything foolhardy. And Clinch quickly learned when he got down there that his plan of storming the fort with 112 men was just not going to happen. After seven days of trying to figure out a way to get close enough to do anything, he had learned that you know, it just wasn't going to happen. They realized that they were going to have to rethink their whole plan. Take this fort, they were going to come back with many more men and much heavier artillery. That 80 colonial marines and the women fighting alongside them, and we know from the eyewitness accounts that have survived from the inside the fort, that the women were also assisting with operating the artillery, with filling the powder bags. Some of the older children were helping do that as well. There was one woman named Mary Ashley who was serving on one of the gun crews. We know that for a fact and that she was raising the flag every morning, and that they were pretty effective artillery. They were firing the artillery effectively. This same prejudice has come to play in much of what modern historians have written about this battle. They describe these colonial marines as not very effective and how they're not very well-trained and not very good soldiers. Some have said this was one of the shortest battles in history because of how quickly the battle ended on the eighth day of the battle. But it was not one of the shortest battles in history. This battle had been underway eight days by the time of the final fatal explosion. They held off a much larger force for seven complete days. Eighty men held off 350 with women and children fighting alongside, defending their fort, standing to their guns. What they did was wage a very impressive fight. I think they deserve a lot of credit to this point of the battle for what they had done. Where did American military forces stand in their campaign on the eve of the eighth day? Finally got the gunboats up. On the seventh day of the battle, that afternoon, Clinch and Sailing Master Lumen decided they viewed the fort, they looked at the situation, they had a little bit of disagreement uh, later, but uh, that afternoon of the seventh day of the battle, which was July 26, 1860, they surveyed the works from the gunboat, and they decided that the next morning the gunboats would fire some range shots, and that would help them to determine what size artillery they needed to bring with them when they came back. So on the morning of July 27, 1816. What was unique about that morning in that year of 1816? There's something creepy about this morning that has often slipped by people who have studied or written about this battle. This battle was fought under a red sun, under a red sky. This was the year without a summer. There had been a big volcanic explosion in the Pacific. This volcano had poured a huge amount of ash into the atmosphere over the northern, and this ash had caused this eerie red glow in the sky. As the sun rose that morning of July 27th, the sky is tinted red as it had been throughout the battle. 
And so as the gunboats come into sight that morning, the sky is red and symbolism to that, I think, that is often overlooked in this battle. Garçon and his gunners are at the water battery and they're watching these gunboats come into view that morning. And, and they're two miles downriver. Garçon fires a shot from the 32-pounder and it overshoots the gunboat, and the gunboats begin to open fire. Now, the gunboats, they only have nine pounders. They each only have one cannon, one heavier gun, and maybe a couple of swivel guns on them. They can't even reach a fort. Apparently, the Navy and the Army disagreed about the effectiveness of the shot that did reduce the fort to rubble. Later, the Army and the Navy get into an argument over whether this is uh, carefully placed naval shot that causes what happens shortly, or whether it's just a fluke. And the Army maintains it's a fluke, and the Navy maintains that their gunners are so good that they do just incredible display of artillery. And what do the facts show? The Navy just can't even, first shot just can't even hit anything. The Navy fires again, they don't hit anything. The gunners in the fort, meanwhile, fire another shot. It falls short. Many would think this is because, and historians have written this, is because these Marines, colonial Marines, are just not very good at artillery. But what they've actually done is they've bracketed these gunboats as they're coming up the river. And this is an artillery tactic. That means that you fire beyond them, you fire short of them, you're bracketing them in, your next shot. If they don't hit them, they're going to come very close. Meanwhile, the gunboats are zigzagging. They're warping, working their way up the river. That's enabling them to get closer so that hopefully they can get shot off. They fire two more times that are getting close. It's taking time to load these big, heavy guns in the fort's water battery. Meanwhile, inside the octagonal citadel of the fort, Women and children are filling powder bags. All the other artillery are ready for this battle is breaking out. In the fort, Garçon and the gunners are getting ready to fire again. The gunboats have now fired four times. On gunboat 154, Sailing Master Bassett decides to fire a hot shot to see if he can set some of the houses that are around the fort on fire. So they called the round a hot shot. How do you do a hot shot on a boat? The gunboats are small vessels. They don't even have a cook stove on them where they can cook their meat. What they have is a sandbox on part of the ship where they can build a fire on the... It's almost like a sandbox on a playground. In the middle of the sandbox, they have a little fire they burn to cook their meals, and they have a kettle, a cooking kettle, over this fire. So on this kettle, they can drop a cannonball into this kettle. It's a solid iron, nine-pound iron ball. And in the kettle, they cook the kettle until it gets red hot. And so they've got this cannonball in their cooking kettle, heating it up until it gets turns red hot. Then they take a set of tongs that look almost like, uh, if you've ever seen a pair of old ice tongs, like they you pick up blocks of ice. They use these tongs, and they pick this cannonball up, and they take it up to the bow of the boat, and they drop it down the muzzle of the cannon. And they quickly fire the cannon, this red hot cannonball is designed to set something on fire. And so they fire this red-hot cannonball at the fort. Well, it falls short. It's not going to hit the fort. But what it does hit is a pine tree. And an eyewitness drive happening. It hits a pine tree, and it bends this pine tree down instead of breaking it off. As it bends this pine tree down, the pine tree basically flings it or ricochets it 
again, and it ricochets it off and in right down into the center of this octagon, this octagonal citadel of the fort, right down to where the women and children are filling these bags with gunpowder. And these bags are used to fire the cannon. They put this bag of gunpowder down the muzzle of the cannon, and then they roll the cannonball down the muzzle, and then they light to fire the cannon. It sets off a fire where these women and children are filling the powder bags. Fire ignites and goes through the open door of a powder magazine. And right inside the door of the powder magazine is a stack of howitzer shells. And it ignites these howitzer shells and causes an explosion. And when these howitzer shells explode, they set off about 100 to 150 barrels of cannon powder. And the gunpowder magazine explodes. When that happens, the center of the fort just blows. And that center of the fort is octagonal shaped structure. It just instantly explodes. Inside the center, inside this octagonal shaped part of the fort, that's where all the women and the children, 200 or so, and on top of this part of the fort is a group of men and women who are firing cannon that are all right there in this concentrated part of the fort. When it explodes, it just vaporized everyone, destroyed everything right there at the center of the fort. 270 people are killed in an instant. It's just an unbelievable, uh, horrible thing happened. The explosion is so massive, so intense, that they feel it 100 miles away in Pensacola. It feels like an earthquake. It's felt for 100 miles around. For people who aren't just torn instantly, it does massive internal damage. It does their internal organs are just damaged, droid. It causes massive hearing damage. It causes damage to your eyes. Just terrible things happen. What happened to Garcon? Did he survive the blast? Garcon is at the water battery 100 yards away, and he's instantly blinded by the explosion, by the, the force of the explosion. The men on the gunboats are in by it, even though they don't know the fort is destroyed. Well, it's not totally destroyed, but it causes massive damage, and Central Citadel is just torn up by the explosion. I had a friend with the U.S. Forest Service who described it, I think, very well. She said that for people of that day, it would be like us seeing a thermonuclear explosion. They had never seen anything like it, except for maybe one man who was present, and that was Captain Uhlenberg of the 4th Infantry was there. He had witnessed the same thing in Canada when he was standing beside General Pike, when General Pike decapitated that explosion of a magazine just a couple of years later to see the same thing happen again at Prospect Bluff. But for all the Native Americans, all the other in the present, they'd never seen anything like it. So much death, so much destruction. In an instant, the largest pre-black community in North America in the blink of an eye. 270, that's a guess, of people are killed. The surgeon says that human remains are scattered over one square mile. That would include into the Apalachicola River. That would include the entire surface of Prospect Bluff. The fort is at the southern bluff, so that would include into the swamps beyond the bluff to the south, 
that would include all over today's historic site. That would include in the private lands to the north of the bluff. The entire area today, massive grave where people not only were buried, but also their remains, you now part of the air, part of the water, part of the ground of prospect. Are the Maroons getting a bad rap on their defense of the fort? I don't think there was anything incompetent at all about their defense of the fort. Had the U.S. infantry been defending the fort and the British fired a shot at it and a hot shot hit a pine tree and done the same thing, that the Americans would have been destroyed just just the same. It just was a fluke. Colonel Quench, later General Quench, said it was an act of heaven, the way he described it, an act of God. He, later... There was an argument between the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Army said it was a fluke. The U.S. Navy said it was our superior marksmanship. To prove the point, the U.S. Army tried to duplicate the shot, and they sent one of the top artillery commanders in the U.S. Army with a nine-pounder to try to fire from the point where the hot shot was fired. And they estimated the range at 1,700 yards, which is 700 yards beyond the uh, maximum range of a nine-pounder of the type that fired the shot. They could not even hit the citadel of the fort from that range with repeated attempts. And this was during the time after Fort Gadsden had been built at the site. And they, this was during 1819, during this argument that blew up between Dumas and Clinch over the effectiveness of the U.S. Navy artillery. But when they tried to duplicate the shot during some experimentation, they could not even hit the fort, let alone the citadel. They couldn't even hit the lines of the 14-acre fort with a nine-pounder. That tells you something about how big of a fluke the shot was. They determined that the shot had been fired from 700 yards beyond the range of a nine-pounder. This would be the equivalent of throwing a Hail Mary pass from the practice field and scoring a touchdown to win the Super Bowl. You mentioned the casualties. How many people survived the blast within the fort? There were about 50 people who survived the explosion. Of those, according to one account, only two people were left without injury in the fort after the explosion. It took a little bit for everyone to kind of get over their shock at what had happened. The gunboats came on up to the fort, brought Clinch up there. The troops and the warriors rushed in. They came in. Everything was on fire when Clinch got there, when the soldiers came in. Clinch got up on a mound of dirt and is yelling out orders for what everyone needs to do to secure the scene. Doesn't even realize that he is standing in the midst of fire on top of another gunpowder magazine. And someone standing on the ground below him realizes that and that that gunpowder magazine is surrounded by fire, and they have to rush and put out the fire to keep that powder magazine from going off. They have to extinguish the fire, stop that to prevent other powder magazines from going off. They capture Garcon and the Choctaw leader alive. They question them. Garcon tells them that his orders were to not allow any American vessels to pass the fort. He explains to them that Nichols had told them that he was coming back, and until or another British ship returned that they are not to allow any American vessel to pass the fort. They then have Dorsan executed. They have the Choctaw leader executed. They round up those who have survived explosion. They find out that the majority of them, as I've mentioned, are from Florida. They turn them over 
to Edmund Doyle, who is a representative of John Forbes and company, to take back to Pensacola and St. Augustine. They turned them back over to their original claimants, even though those people who claim them have already been paid for them by the British, and they are returned to slavery. What kind of lessons did the military take away from this operation? They didn't take much away from it, to be honest with you. Now, Fort Gadsden was not built for another year later, but oddly enough, the British magazine was built better than the later American magazine. The British magazine at least faced north. The American magazine, when it was built, faced downriver. The door to the American magazine faced downriver. The door to the British magazine faced upriver. The only reason that the British magazine exploded was because the cannonball that exploded it did not actually enter the British magazine. It was fire because they were filling powder bags outside the magazine and fire entered through the door. The door to the American magazine actually faced downstream, and so a cannonball could actually have entered that door to the magazine. In that sense, no, they didn't learn much from it. A gunboat or a ship coming up river could actually have fired a shot right through the door of the American powder magazine. Dale, your research on this led you to focus on the people who were in the fort. What can you tell us about them? I've always been curious about who were the men, women, and children who lived at this fort. A lot of times through history, foils go to the winners. This was a place of freedom, and this was a place that you know, people lived there for two years, and they lived free of slavery. The truth is, the majority of the people who lived there did go on to live free, whether as Seminoles or in Trinidad. I've always been curious about them, and I did set out to learn more about them. And in terms of the Maroons, the self-liberated slaves, I have been successful in learning many of their names. And so we do know of the ones who left and went to Trinidad, we do know hundreds of those names now. It is possible for people, the descendants who live in Trinidad, to trace back their names now, the family lineages, and learn if their ancestors came from Prospect Bluff. We also know of those who died there, we do have names who never arrived in Trinidad, never were returned to slavery. So those names who just stopped, we're pretty confident that those are the names of people who died in that explosion. We also know the names of ones who were taken prisoner. We know one of those was Abraham, who later became very famous among the Seminoles. Abraham led Maroons, or Black Seminoles, during the Second Seminole War. He was a famous sense-bearer for Micanopy, and of course he fought courageously at the Dave battle. Later was taken prisoner and was sent west on the Trail of Tears, became a cattle rancher during his later days in what we now know as Oklahoma, or the Spencer Creek Nation in Oklahoma. Abraham would be the best known, but some of the Seminoles who were there are people that we would know. John Hicks was there. King Philip was there, others like that, Jumper was there, people like that. There were many people who were at Prospect Bluff. Peter McQueen was there. Probably the best-known individual who spent time at Prospect Bluff, Osceola. Osceola was there as a young teenager. He was a great-nephew of Peter McQueen. He was there as a young teenager when he first came south with the Red Sticks. He and his mother arrived at Prospect Bluff among those starving Red Sticks that I talked about. And they came there, eat food, supplies from the British, and may have survived because Prospect Bluff existed and were 
able to come there and live and survive, he may have become such an intriguing and well-known figure because that Ford at Prospect Love. Our listeners will recognize a common thread throughout these discussions, and that is how technology has opened up resources that a few years ago were very difficult to obtain or even discover. When I began writing my book, The Ford at Prospect Bluff, that's why I began to write it, is that over the last 15 years, a wealth of new documentation has become accessible. But even more so, it is now easier to communicate with people around the world than it was 20 years ago. Because of that, I've been able to work with other researchers in Great Britain, in Spain, and in other places. By working collaboratively, we can work together, work collaboratively. A friend of mine in Great Britain, a friend of mine in Spain, a friend of mine elsewhere is working on a different project. We can work together. Another thing is that there's become a realization in the last decade, the last 20 years, that Spanish of the early 1800s needs to be interpreted differently than Spanish of today. And so I have a friend in Nicaragua who reads Spanish of that era very well. And so he is helping me to even reinterpret documents. And by reinterpreting documents and letters of that era, we gain new meaning from them. And we're able to reinterpret them and understand them better. We're able to take newly discovered documents or take original documents and go back and take a second look at them. By doing that, we're beginning to understand better what the original writer meant. We're doing that, we're understanding descriptions of forts, we're understanding letters. We are now beginning to find things like letters written by Red Stick Chief in 1814 and in 1815. We're finding letters written by Maroon who were at Prospect Bluff. We are finding letters from Trinidad that were written by Maroons who had been at Prospect Bluff. We're finding letters from archives in Cuba. We're finding letters in Spain. We're finding letters in Great Britain. We have now found diagrams and maps that Captain George Woodbine, who was at Prospect Bluff, drew. We're learning so much more about all of this. We're finding provision lists that list who was receiving provision at Prospect Bluff and at the upper fort on the Apalachicola. And all of this is changing our understanding about these events. We found these original letters that the prophet Josiah France and Peter McQueen wrote. And through these, it's just opening our eyes. You know, I wrote a 500-page book and could have written a 5,000-page book. It breaks my heart when I have to decide what I want to leave out because there is so much new documentation. I want to follow up this book with a reader that is nothing but documentation because there's so much new documentation that is now available that I just want to put out there for other historians and for people who just like to read the documents. I could actually come out with a second volume to it that would be nothing but documentation. A good example would be is since the book came out, I have found diagrams that support conclusions that I had reached about how the fort was built, that support conclusions I had reached about the strength of the fort. There is so much more. That's the great thing about digital publishing now. You can correct things. Just update your book and put it back out.
that's the wonderful thing about today is that in about 24 hours, you can update your book and just put it back out as an updated edition. I think more authors should do that. If you can update your information and make it accurate when you find new information, do it. Don't leave incorrect information out there. I wish more people would do that. And just put in the introduction, hey, we've updated this, here's why. And that's the wonderful thing about modern publishing. You don't, you can refute yourself. That's a great thing. Thankfully, I don't have to do that very often. There's no embarrassment in finding new information. Okay, let's put it to the test. You published this book in 2020. What have you discovered since that refutes or supports arguments you made in the book? I published it right when the pandemic hit, 2020. Nothing dramatic. There is a lot of things that add. There's nothing that really refutes anything. The one thing that I really liked, I have found quite a bit more in terms of the writings of William Hambly. He was a lieutenant in the British Colonial Marine. He wrote a lot more in the intervening time after the British left and the destruction of the fort. We've been able to find many more of his letters and writings. That's one thing I would like to do is do a volume without even really any of my writing in it, just a volume of source material. It would be interesting reading for people and would be helpful for others who are researching the topic. I love these books like the Alamo Reader where you read it and all it is is the source documents. I'd love to do a volume like that somewhere in the next year or two. This All it is is the source documents on Prospect Love where people and other historians can make use of them. These source documents can lend themselves to different uses, such as being put into a novel. I don't have any plans for anything like that, but I do think if I published something that would be like a, a reader of all the source documents, someone could take that and do something like that. If not a novel, what is a larger nonfiction project you're taking on? The larger project is to take, move through the first Seminole War, and then the Second Seminole War west of the Suwannee, it's a massive project that really looks at it to include a massive amount of documentation that includes Spanish documents and Native American documents, which many people really until recently, we haven't known even existed, but we've been able to find a treasure trove of documentation that includes a number of letters written by Red Stick, the Red Stick Prophet and Red Stick that we just stumbled on. They were fortunate enough to have someone write out letters for them that they were writing back and forth to the British, and they continued to do so. Prophet Francis, Peter McQueen, Hamad Lamico, and others continued to write letters all the way up through until Jackson hanged them through the First Seminole War. That's something that I'm working on now that we're making really good progress on. This is going to be another 500-page volume that's going to take the next volume of the First Seminole War. But it really is going to add massive perspective that has not been available until this volume that really tells a different side of it that is going to offer depth that has not previously been available. And I'm really looking forward to getting that out. And I think it'll be good and balanced, but for something to be truly balanced, you have to be able to tell both sides of it. And the way I've always liked to do that is to tell, and what I really liked when I wrote a book about the Battle of Mariana during the Civil War in Florida, was to be able to tell perspective from each side of the battle. What I'm looking forward to on this first Seminole War book 
is that I'm going to be able to do that finally. I'm going to be able to tell as we go through it, perspective from each side. That's never been done in terms of this battle. I think people have been able to imagine what the perspective was, but now we're going to be able to tell it with words. That's what the great thing of it is, is there's been so many years of debate and talk and exchanging information back and forth and mountains and mountains and mountains of information that something wouldn't have made sense 20 years ago, that then five years ago, we working with someone else, I discovered something, and that made something from 20 years ago make sense. This one may be hard to identify from the available records. Gunboat 149, the one that launched the hotshot into the fort at Prospect Bluff. It's a really interesting story, Patrick. Gunboat 149, after the battle, went back to past Christiane, where there was a U.S. naval station in those days. It was really aging out of service by that time. The boat was not in the best of condition before the battle. It served another two years. The First Seminole War came along. The gunboat was sent back to Florida to escort supplies for Andrew Jackson's army during the First Seminole War. And when it got back to Prospect Bluff during the First Seminole War, the vessel was so leaky they were afraid to take it back to sea. As James Gadsden and the U.S. Army were building what became Fort Gadsden on the site of Prospect Bluff, they decided to convert the boat for use as a floating magazine for Jackson's army. It was anchored there off the face of the bluff. It was used to store the army's gunpowder and the gunpowder for the fort. While the construction of the fort was underway, the sailors and the non-commissioned officers on board the boat were just afraid to take the thing back out into the open gulf by this point. This is two years after the explosion of the fort. Once the new fort, Fort Gasden, was completed and it had a magazine in it, and the gunpowder could be transferred off of the vessel. They tied it to the shore there, and it was allowed to sink right there off of the face of the bluff. To this day, somewhere underneath the mud, off of the face of Fort Gadsden, gunboat 149, one of the two gunboats that was involved in the attack that destroyed the Negro Fort or the Fort at Prospect Bluff, remains right there at Fort Gadsden or Prospect Bluff Historic Sites. Are there plans to resurface Gunboat 149 and either preserve it or put it into a museum? At present, there are no plans to, but I do believe it is certainly possible to. There's an interesting fact that um, a few years ago, the Apalachicola River reached a very low stage. And when that happened, it exposed actually the base of a line of stockade posts from Fort Gadsden extending right down into the bottom of the Apalachicola River. And the actual stockade posts are still there, which shows that the wood from the original fort is preserved, from the 1818 fort is preserved. That tells me that there's a good chance that at least the bottom of gunboat 149, one of these two gunboats involved in the attack on the fort, could still be down there as well. That would be a remarkable piece of underwater archaeology for one of Florida's universities, maybe University of West Florida, which has a spectacular underwater archaeology department to undertake. And what archaeology was done on the land or the surface where the Fort at Prospect Bluff is located? There was some archaeology done in the 40s out there, very limited. 
there was a larger project done in 1960s that was focused on trying to find out what might be out there. At that time, the site was heavily wooded. No one really knew much about the design or the construction of the original British post. You could tell a lot about Orgasden because the earthworks are still there and very visible. They did find traces of both the original octagonal citadel of the British post, some of the outer entrenchments, and some of the structures of Fort Gadsden were located as well during that project. The original timbers at the base of the octagonal citadel are still down there, and some of the other types of construction. They found twisted up pieces of some of the gunpowder kegs, things like that were located out there. In 2016, at the time of the 200th anniversary of the construction of the fort and of the history of the fort at Prospect Bluff, there was a lot of ground-penetrating radar and other geophysical research done. And then following Hurricane Michael, because Hurricane Michael had toppled a number of trees at the site, archaeologists were able to excavate in the roots of those trees to see what artifacts may have been turned up. There were not a huge number of artifacts, but the artifacts that were found did reveal a lot about life at the site. There were some campfire-type features located, uh, things like that. More than anything, the current archaeology that has been done out at the site has been geophysical in nature, meaning ground-penetrating radar, LIDAR, things like that. And that has revealed a lot about the construction and design of the fort, particularly the British fort, which later became known, of course, as the Negro fort. And it has been rewarding to learn about that. A word of caution should be added here that it's important to realize that this entire site is one mass grave. And so in terms of digging in the earth, we have to be respectful there because this entire site, human bodies were saturated into the earth of this site. So in the views of many, including myself, this earth is sacred. Human beings, human blood was shed into this ground. In my view and in the view of many people, we don't necessarily want to go out there and be digging into this earth because human bodies deteriorated into this ground. People sacrificed their blood in this ground for the sake of freedom. What do you say to people with metal detectors who think, oh, I'll go out to this fort and find some really cool things? Well, number one, this is a federally protected site. So number one, anyone going out there with a metal detector is going to get arrested and sent away to federal prison for a long, long time. So don't do that. Prospect Bluff is owned by the people of the United States and everything there belongs to all of us. That's number one. Number two, this is a site where many different people gave their lives. Native Americans died there, both in the explosion, but also prior to the explosion, thousands of red sticks came down after the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. They were starving and they were suffering from disease when they arrived there. Many of them died from those conditions, and we don't know where they were buried. There were British troops who served there. Many of them had been wounded and were suffering from disease and from infections following the Battle of New Orleans. Some of them came from Jamaica. Some of them came from Great Britain. We don't know where their graves are located. Of course, the explosion, it's a terrible thing to even consider. But it, according to the U.S. surgeon, human remains were scattered over one square mile of the site. And you think about that, these were people who were fighting for freedom. Their blood was soaked into an area of one square mile. 
then later, U.S. soldiers died there, nearly 100 from fever and from disease, and they're buried out there. And then in later times, this was a riverboat landing where people working in the logging industry and the timber industries and the turpentine industries worked and lived and died there. And so their cemetery is located on this site. There's a riverboat captain buried right in the middle of Fort Gadsden in an unmarked grave. In the neighboring community to live members of the Brown family. According to newspaper records, their family buried their ancestors on this site. Plus, you have archaeological remains buried underneath this ground that even today already our technology can look beneath the ground and show us the outlines of structures, the outlines of buildings without having to take a shovel and dig it up. So why would you want to disturb the final resting place of so many hundreds of people just to retrieve an artifact when you can look at what's underground without doing that? To me, it's just an atrocious thought to even consider the fact of doing that, of digging things up out there, when number one, it's illegal, number two, it's immoral, and number three, you would be disturbing the ancestors of so many thousands of people who live both in the United States, but who live in other countries, who live in the Bahamas, who live in Trinidad, who live in Cuba, who live in so many different places when that's not necessary. The Seminole tribe of Florida, the Miccosukee Indian tribe of Florida, who live in Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, who live in the Muscogee Nation. There's no reason to do this. I'm probably one of those people who would chain myself to a tree out there to keep people from digging up human remains at the site. It's a sacred place. People might go to Washington, D.C. and look at Arlington Cemetery and be moved to tears because you look at all of those people who gave their lives in the cause of freedom. Well, for Native Americans, for the descendants of the Maroons who fought at Prospect Bluff, even for the descendants of American soldiers who gave their lives at Prospect Bluff. There's a U.S. officer buried there who was a hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe. When you go to Prospect Bluff, that's how I feel. I feel the same way there that I do when I go to Arlington. It is the same kind of feeling that takes me over. This is a place where people died for freedom. And that's why you shouldn't go out and put a shovel in the ground there. I don't think archaeologists should be putting shovels in the ground there. Some ground archaeology can be conducted there, but it's very special circumstances when it is. At Prospect Bluff, other than following the hurricane, trees that had crashed down on, on the side, on the park, had to be removed. There has not been any archaeology done there of that nature since the 1960s. The type of archaeology that is being done there today is geophysical, which means it doesn't involve shovels being put in the ground. The Forest Service has been very careful not to put shovels in the ground. In fact, recently there was an effort to obtain a grant by SEAC, the Southeast Archaeological Conservancy, I believe is the title of it, to do some in-the-ground archaeology there. And when the Seminole Tribe of Florida objected to that, the grant application was withdrawn. There hasn't been any shovel-in-the-ground type archaeology going on out there. There has been ground-penetrating radar, LIDAR, things like that to learn more about the site, but no one is out there excavating units and digging holes. None of that is going on. Hurricane Michael provides an exception because it knocked trees over, 
nobody intentionally knocked the trees over. But since Hurricane Michael knocked trees over, it exposed artifacts that had been under the surface, and those can be examined. It's easy to forget, especially in areas of Florida that were not impacted by Michael. Hurricane Michael was a Category 5 hurricane, and the best way to compare this to, for your listeners, maybe in South Florida, is Hurricane Andrew. Hurricane Michael was a Category 5 hurricane that hit a very rural part of Florida, out of sight, out of mind, but it devastated a rural area of Florida that did not have the means to quickly recover from this storm. When you travel into this area of Florida, you're still seeing those blue tarps on people's roofs. You still see destroyed homes. Unfortunately, at Prospect Bluff, you still see a historic site that has not had the financial means to recover from this storm. The Forest Service has been slowly working to repair this historic site from the damage it received during this terrible storm. People came first trying to help people survive the storm and get back into housing. This is a very rural area where very few people live. And at the site itself, they had to remove trees. They had to remove a massive amount of debris. That has been done. Then they had to repair damage to the little museum building that was on the site. Well, that has been done. Picnic shelters had trees that fell through them. That has been repaired, and the shelters have been repaired. It literally ripped the power and the water lines out of the ground, the storm did. So now they're working on repairing those. There's an area where a host lives when the site is open so that there is someone out there full-time. And so now they're working on repairing that area of the site and getting electricity restored to the site. And once that's done, then the site will be able to reopen. The last time I spoke with someone about it, they told me they hoped maybe in a few months now the site will be able to reopen to the public. The term of art that they use is rescue archaeology or salvage archaeology. It was rescue archaeology that was done in consultation with the Seminole tribe and other tribes. They went out and they excavated the dirt that was exposed when the tree roots came up. And they screened that dirt that was in the roots of the trees. There were not a huge number of artifacts that were exposed. It was mostly broken pieces of ceramics, a few musket balls, little things like that. Nothing dramatic. I mean, there weren't like huge cannonballs that came up in the earth, things like that. It was bits and pieces from campfires, little things that gave them more information about what life was like when people lived there. Then they filled in. That allowed them then to remove these tree stumps that were turned over during the storms and fill the holes back in. And that's the type of archaeology that was done there. It was all part of the cleaning up from the storm. There was some of that type work done. There were reports prepared from that. If you want to learn more about what was done there for people who may be traveling around the state some, there is a great exhibit at Florida Public Archaeology Network's offices in Pensacola right now that you can visit, and you can see some of that, and they have some of it on display there right now. Dale, you mentioned the commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the battle at the Fort at Prospect Bluff. How memorable a ceremony was that to have all these descendants gathered to commemorate the actions that happened at this bluff? It was very moving. It was very interesting. There were many people, particularly from the immediate area around the site who came, also, there were representatives from the Seminole tribe who came up. 
and representatives from the Muskogee Nation of Oklahoma attended. It was the first time that the principal chief from the Muskogee Nation of Oklahoma had been back to the area since the days of the Trail of Tears. And I found that very moving to listen to him speak and to hear his thoughts on coming back. And he talked about how in the Muskogee Nation, among many of the elders, there is a hesitancy to look back on the region because there's a sadness associated with it. And that's understandable because there is a great sense of loss among many in Oklahoma. I lived out there for a long time. And there is a hesitancy to look back to Florida and to the East because of the sadness associated with everything that was lost. But he talked about the need to look back and the need to remember and to teach younger generations so that they would know their own history. And he talked about the association of his ancestors with the site. And he shook hands with a representative of the Seminole Nation of Florida. And I found that to be a very moving moment for representatives from the Forest Service in Washington, D.C. there. And they spoke about how this is the only national historic landmark that is protected by the U.S. Forest Service in their southern district and that they hope to continue to make it a better place and add more interpretation to it in the future. That's important. It's important for this to become an easier place for people to visit and learn about. When you go there right now, there's not a lot of interpretation on site. It's an interesting place to visit, but as you walk around, there aren't many signs to tell you what you're seeing. They're adding a few right now, but many more are needed in the future. And I hope that's something that the Forest Service will continue to do as time goes along. I used to give tours out there for people. And right now I'm receiving a lot of requests for tours. Site's closed and I can't give tours because of that. That's a shame because there are many people who would like to learn more about the site. And hopefully that day will come again when people can go out there and tour it and see it and learn about it. In addition to the tribes and the Forest Service, there were Maroon descendants who were out there as well. Yeah, Maroon descendants from as far away as California. We had Maroon descendants from Florida there. It's very moving for them. My friend Matt Shack, who was on our 200th anniversary committee with me, is a descendant of Maroons. He tells a story about how his grandmother used to tell them about what she called the Black People's Fort, and that as a kid, he never believed that such a place really existed. He thought she was just dreaming this place up in her elder years. It was not until he was in the U.S. Navy that he learned that this place really did exist. And he now teaches black history at Gulf Coast College in Panama City. He teaches younger generations about this fort, and it's so meaningful to him now. And for him to take part that day was very meaningful and important experience for him. To see him and to see others there that day, it really meant a lot to them. Some of those participants who were there that day have even been before the United Nations and been before Congress and been before others to talk about how important of a place Prospect Bluff is. For everyone there that day, descendants of all of the the groups there, there were descendants of U.S. soldiers who took part in this campaign who were there that day. I think we all gained something from it. Many of us have continued to try to be a part of the site, some more successfully than others. Then new generations come along, and some of them don't want some of us around as much anymore because they want to steer it in their direction. That's okay. Everyone has a different idea for it. But it is a very special place. I hope that future generations will adopt it, and it will become important to them, too.
What is the focus of the park when you get there? Is it U.S.-centric or the stories of the other groups represented? Well, when it was a Florida State Park, most of the focus was on Fort Gadsden because of the Andrew Jackson connection. That was kind of what the focus was back in the 1960s and 1970s. And if you visited back in those days, the British Post or Negro Fort was an aside. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, and back there, there was this fort that got blown up. That has changed now. Actually, that is the part of the fort that is the National Historic Landmark. So when you visit it today, the Fort Gadsden part is by no means neglected. In fact, that's the part when you visit that is actually very visual. You see those earthworks, and many people actually think that is the British Post. It's not. The British Post, actually, the front part of Fort Gadsden was part of the British Post, but the main citadel of the British Post, where the explosion took place, is immediately behind that. When you visit it today, you get a much more balanced picture of everything there. You learn the story of both. You learn about the original British Post, you learn about Fort Gadsden, and then you learn about later history of the site. It's important to learn the whole story because that is what makes the entire site important. I think that even the earlier history of the site is important. The notorious venturer, William Augustus Bowles, had a pirate base there before either of the forts were built, and he had a fort there. And before that, going back thousands of years, this was a site of Native American settlement. And then later, there, of course, it had a history of timber, and there was a fort there during the Civil War, and, and there were all these other things there. It's a very important place. It's where Zachary Taylor resigned command of the Army in Florida during the Second Seminole War. That's important. It was a base of operations against Pascofa during the Second Seminole War. It has a long history and a rich history. I think all of that history should be told, of course, with special emphasis on the War of 1812 and the Fort of Prospect Bluff story. Now people can get a much more balanced, a much broader view of the significance of the site, but also learn the whole story. And I think that's important. I'd like to see eventually one day when you go out there and walk an interpretive trail through it, you can learn the whole story of the site. What do our listeners need to know if they want to visit the fort at Prospect Bluff slash Fort Gadsden historical site? Visit Prospect Bluff once it reopens. Also take the time to go up to Chattahoochee and visit the site of Nichols Outpost, which is open to the public at River Landing Park. It was the sister fort to this fort. There was another fort at Chattahoochee. There is interpretation there. You can learn about it at the site, and that is also the site of the Scott Battle of 1817, which was the first U.S. defeat, first Seminole victory of the Seminole Wars. And it's about 60 miles up the Apalachicola River at Chattahoochee. They have a beautiful historic site, park area there at Riverlanding Park. Bill Cox, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us yet again for the Seminole Wars. You are very welcome. Happy to do it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast.
The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.